Well, good morning again, and as we continue our series out of Romans chapter 12 through 16, living out the gospel, I'm excited for what God has for us today. One of the things that we love to do here at Grace is to focus our energies and attentions on the Word of God, and our hosts are here prepared today. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures with you and like to have a hard copy in your hand, uh, we would love to provide one of those for you. If you don't own one, this can be a gift to you. If you have one and just don't happen to have it with you today, uh, you can drop it off on the way out and we can use that in future weeks. So if you catch the attention of one of the hosts, we'd be happy to get you a copy of the scriptures here this morning. Romans chapter 12 is where we're at. We're talking about being transformed by and living out the gospel, uh, the heart and the essence of what it means to have new life in Christ. Got a question for you. What comes to mind when I mention the phrase or the term team project? I'm guessing there's some various responses in your mind. Some of you are like, yes, team projects, group projects. Somebody else gets to do all the work and I get to ride their coattails. And some of you are like, oh no, there are people out there that are going to ride my coattails. I'm going to have to do all their work and mine as well. Team projects for me are a mixed bag because I've been the recipient of having great teammates at various times who've done things and have accomplished things that I never could have done and accomplished on my own. And I've also been on some of those teams where all of the weight and responsibility seemingly, in my perspective, fell to me. I remember early on in my days at Grace College as a freshman, young and somewhat overwhelmed by the world and all that was there, being in a New Testament survey class, and to me at that time, the dreaded words group project were uttered by a professor. And I remember sitting there as the groups were being figured out and people were kind of self-drafting and selecting one another, and I was a, a little bit more uh, cautious and reserved. I wasn't the first one out of, the, out of the boat, so to speak. And I remember just instantly thinking and starting to plot, who can I get on a team with that's going to be really, really conscientious and work really hard so that we can ensure that we get a good, a good grade. I don't want to get stuck with a group that doesn't care about the outcome. And I remember sitting there and looking around to all of the other people in the class and, and the freshmen that I had gotten to know and those that I, I mean, I was, I was somewhat overwhelmed. And I, I remember seeing all of the people that I instantly thought, oh, I should get on a team with getting together, and I was left on the outside. And before long, I was the last kid on the playground to be picked for the soccer ball game. And I looked, and there are these two guys, one I didn't know, and the other one everyone knew. And he was very, very talented. He was an upperclassman. He was the face of grace. There, weren't, there were a lot of things that this guy could do. But I wasn't so sure that he was very concerned about what his grade would end up being. And so instantly I was concerned. Well, fast forward a little bit, comes to find, come to realize this gentleman, as I said, was very talented. And back in the early to mid 90s was somebody who knew how to do video equipment and, and make videos and produce things. And so our project at the end, I said, never have I done so little work and have had so much fun and gotten such a good grade. That's just how it worked out because he was so good at what he did. But I remember we made this video and it was, uh, we had to do something on the New, it was New Testament survey. So we had this NTV uh, video that we made, not MTV, NTV, New Testament video. And there I was, he drugged me into doing things that were absolutely embarrassing and humiliating. I had to dance on stage and I have no rhythm. It was a disaster. 
And I remember sitting in the, in the class as this video is being played. And I remember, I still remember everybody laughing at that moment. But my friend was like, we got to put this in there. This is great. And I'm thinking, no, it's awful. But team projects, they bring out the best and they bring out the worst. And you never know what you're going to get. Sometimes you get to ride the coattails like I did in my New Testament survey class. Sometimes you carry the load. And that's how it works. This morning, as we progress in Romans chapter 12, we're moving out of the the first two verses where we spent time last week, and we're starting to look at what it means to be living sacrifices, to have minds and hearts that are transformed and renewed so that they're like Christ. And here we get into the, the heart of application of what Paul was getting at last week with his encouragement. Last week he said, in view of God's mercies, I urge you, I implore you, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so today in verse three, verses 3 through 8, where we're focusing today, we come to the first point of application, what it means to have a transformed lives, what it means to have our bodies offered as living sacrifices, and it comes down to a giant team project. It's called the body of Christ. It's a commitment to a community of believers. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we offer ourselves to him, when he begins to move in and transform our hearts and our minds, when he begins to renew them, we begin to look at the relationship we have with one another in an entirely different way. It takes on a whole new perspective and it rises to a whole new level of value and importance. And if that idea or that concept sounds familiar to you, it's because it is. It's because it is. It's not just here in Romans chapter 3, 12, verses 3 through 8, but it's all over the pages of Scripture. Let's go ahead and read our text for today and see what we're dealing with. Then you'll be able to test what his will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, the end of uh, verse 2. Verse 3 picks up with this. Paul says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members not do, do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. As I said, if that sounds familiar, it's because we find it splattered all over the pages of Scripture. We find key passages on what it means to be part of the body of Christ and to use our gifts for others. And not just here in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, but we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a key prime passage that we're probably familiar with if we've been around grace for any length of time. Chapter 13 and 14 add flesh to that. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16 talk about the gifts of the Spirit that God has given to the body, the church, for its building up and its 
edification. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, we find the idea and the, the, the concept of what it means to be part of this giant team project all over the pages of Scripture. It's team living. It's biblical community. It's spiritual family. In our passage today, Paul exhorts the Roman believers, those who've been called out as living sacrifices, who have their minds in the process of being renewed, toward a beautiful interdependence. A beautiful interdependence. If you've got your worship program with you today, you'll find an outline there. And we're going to look at that. And we're going to look at three elements of vital spiritual community from our passage today. And the first point is this, out of verse, chap, verse 3, is that we would envision ourselves rightly. Verse 3, that we would envision ourselves rightly, that we would see ourselves in the proper way, in the proper perspective. Paul says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Right out of the gate, Paul says, first of all, don't think of yourselves too highly. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Think of yourself correctly. Think of yourself rightly. Envision yourself rightly. If we're going to get this team project figured out, and if we're going to do it well, we need to have a proper perspective of who we are. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Do not think too high of yourself. And he also says, do not think too lowly of yourself. He says, but think just right. Not too high, not too low, just right. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment, soberly, sensibly, accurately, in tune with reality, to see yourself clearly. And the verse ends with, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. That's how we're to view ourselves in this way. And there's some Variants of what exactly does that mean? Some people would look at that and say it's a standard of faith. The Greek word is metron, that we get our word meter from. Here is the standard. View yourself in light of the standard of who Jesus is, the standard of the gospel, the standard of the scriptures. Put yourself in light of what that means. Use that as a standard to gauge how you view yourself, to help you see yourself appropriately. And others would say maybe it's the amount of faith, not simply the standard of faith, but the amount of faith that God has given you. That maybe God has given a varied amount of faith, and through that, whatever our level of maturity is, that we see ourselves appropriately in accordance with our maturity in the measure of faith, the amount of faith that God has given us. Regardless of what the proper interpretation is, we know that the amount of faith option does not speak of saving faith. Saving faith is saving faith. And when we have saving faith, we have faith in Jesus. And that is something different than what would be talked about here if that's the option. The key is that we see ourselves properly, that we see with clear vision. Remember in my high school years, getting my driver's license at age 16, uh, some reason my dad and I were on a phone call recently and that came up not too long ago about the first day that I could possibly get my driving permit. We were there and we got it and I was off and rolling. And I remember on this vacation, we're driving, I think it was in Charlotte, and there were five or six lanes and I'm just cruising along and, and the family's along and all of a sudden dad was like, you need to be way over there. I'm like, how was I supposed to know? And he goes, can't you see that sign? I'm like, oh, I couldn't read the sign. 
When I was driving around home, I knew all the places that I needed to go. I didn't need to read the signs. But here I was out, and I realized that I couldn't see as I was supposed to have seen. And one of Satan's tactics within the body of Christ is to distort our view of ourselves, that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Few things will destroy the unity of the body of Christ more than inflated egos. And Satan works overtime to disrupt and to destroy that which God values in his body. And he works to get us to believe the lie that I'm really something. It's not too hard for most of us at some point, in some way, in some fashion, to have an overinflated view of ourself. Pride is at the core of our self-sufficient, sinful nature. And it results in boasting and that we would take credit and that there's a self-aggrandizing approach to life and that we seek the spotlight, that we don't need others, that we're self-sufficient. I've got this covered on my own. And when that pride and that arrogance and that too high view of ourselves seeps in and takes root in our hearts, it begins to destroy the unity of the body of Christ. In James and in 1 Peter, we read that God opposes the proud. I remember reading that years ago and being struck by that. God isn't just against it or says that's not a good idea. God actually is opposed to the proud. When we stand in pride, we stand against God and God stands against us. But he gives grace to the humble. And Satan would love nothing more than within the body of Christ to have a bunch of us running around here thinking that we're something that we're not. And that we've accomplished something that we haven't. And to take credit for things that we don't deserve to take credit for. But not only is it dangerous to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, it's dangerous to think of ourselves too low, to think of ourselves as insignificant, as not important. If Satan can't get us boasting in ourselves, he's going to get us believing the lie that I don't have anything to offer. And Paul warns us of that as we think of what it means to operate in the body of Christ. The lie is that I don't have anything to offer, that God could never use me. I have nothing of value to contribute. And rather than boasting, we belittle the glory of God that he's emplaced and imprinted on our hearts. We belittle what he's entrusted to us, and we diminish his purpose and his glory working out through us. We need to use the right mirror when we consider who we are. It's kind of funny, it's not real funny, but around our house we've had this scale that, we, that I brought into our marriage X number of years ago, uh, coming up on, uh, I should know this, 14 years in a couple months, in November. And in this scale that I brought into our marriage, I don't know when or where I got it, but it was consistently lying to me. You'd step on the scale and you'd feel better about yourself than you actually were because it would always come in about five or six pounds lighter than you actually were. That's great, except for those times you go to the doctor and you get smacked with the dose of reality or the fact that every time you step on it, you know that it's not truthful, even though you want to believe it. We need to use the right mirrors. We need to use the right scales. We need to use the right measures. And so easily we look to others and to our experiences and to our education and to our accomplishment and what other people in the pattern of the world around us says about us. And we take that as what and who we are rather than looking to the scriptures and to the gospel and to the mirror of God's word to help us understand who we are in light of him. 
Because the scripture tells us that apart from him, apart from God, we are helpless. We are desperate. We are hopeless sinners. There's no one righteous. No, not one, the scriptures say. That nothing that we have was ours on our own or because we were deserving. It's because God in his mercy and his grace has lavished his goodness on us. Anything of value that we have, anything of value that you have, anything that you have to offer was something that was given to you, something that was given to me. It's not because we're deserving. It's not because we're better than the others. This gospel, the scriptures tell us that not only are we hopelessly desperate and helpless, but we're infinitely valuable, that we're a sought-after treasure, that God created us in his image and he left heaven and left no stone unturned to redeem us and to buy us back and to rescue us from our helpless plight. The scriptures tell us that we are helpless, but that we are infinitely valued and that our value is because of him, not because of who we are. And that is how we see ourselves rightly. And that's necessary in the body of Christ if we're going to love and serve and care for one another as we should. Envisioning ourselves rightly is part of our spiritual act of worship. Having minds renewed and transformed to be like Christ. The second point that Paul gets to is in verses 4 and 5, that not only should we envision ourselves rightly, but that we should embrace interdependence wholeheartedly. We need to embrace interdependence wholeheartedly. Just as Each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Interdependence is a difficult idea. It's a difficult pill to swallow. We see in verse 4 that Paul uses the illustration of the human body and how it works together, and there are various parts and various functions, but it's one body got the various systems that, that work together interdependently. You've got the skeletal system and the muscular system and the vascular system and the respiratory system and the digestive system and the nervous system, on and on and on. And, and one that's getting all the attention lately, the immune system. All these systems and more work together. And, and when something isn't working right, we know it, don't we? The longer we live, the more acutely aware of that reality we are. But our body works in perfect harmony the way that God has designed it. And when something isn't quite right, the entire body is impacted and affected. Paul calls us to a radical and and countercultural interdependence and a wholehearted embrace of it. Something that the world does not understand. The mind apart from Christ does not understand. But as he renews our minds and as he makes us new, as he transforms us, we begin to look around and say, these brothers and sisters that God has placed around me, there's a unique interdependence that I'm for them and they're for me. And we have a bond unlike any other bond. Many of you know that we're part of the Karis Fellowship. Uh, Grace Brethren Churches, doing business as in recent years, as the Karis Fellowship. We're part of hundreds of churches here in the States and even more around the world. We're part of a bigger family. And we've talked about our fellowship through the years in our churches in the United States and how do we describe and define how we govern ourselves. 
And just a little plug, we've got a membership class coming up in early October, and would love to have you there. We'll talk a little bit more about this. But the Cares Fellowship, we've talked about ourselves as autonomous, where we govern ourselves independently, but we work together on bigger initiatives that none of us could accomplish on our own. And we've used that word autonomous, and in, in recent years, the word interdependent has, has come into the dialogue and I love that so much more, that we're interdependent. Autonomous, although in certain ways it fits who we are, we're interdependent more than we're autonomous. We need one another. We, we value one another. What we have to provide and, and contribute to one another is part of what holds us and glues us together. We're dependent, interdependent on one another. Paul says, we who are many form one body. In Christ... Verse 5, so in Christ, we're one body. There are all kinds of things around us to divide us, to draw lines in the sand and figure out which side we're on. But in Christ, something unique happens. We become one, united in him. We rise and we fall together. We win and we lose together. We suffer and we celebrate together. And we're not all the same, are we? We're all quite different. Various parts, various functions, various systems. But in Christ, we're one. There's a glorious unity and diversity an interdependence that needs to be on display as our minds are transformed and as we become more like him. That we look out at one another and we recognize that I don't belong to myself any longer. That I'm part of something bigger. I'm part of something grander. And it's not all about me. It's all about him and the glory that he gets as we honor him in the ways that we interact and love and care for one another. Many parts with various functions. And in Christ and only in Christ can we find unity and diversity. As I said, our culture is full of distinction and division. It's the pattern of this age, which 1 John chapter 2 talks about this age that's passing away. And as followers of Jesus Christ with renewed minds, we've got to recognize that our highest association, our highest belonging is in him and in the relationship that he embraces and brings us into as followers of him. Our highest association is in Christ and in the body of fellowship that he has granted to us. And woe is me if I allow my age or my gender or my social economic status or my skin color or what I think of the virus or don't think of the virus or, or what I think of the protective measures or I don't think of the protective measures or what I think about who's in the state house or the courthouse or the White House. Woe is me, woe to us if we allow those things to rise to the level of supreme and ultimate authority and importance that Jesus and only Jesus holds. That together, somehow I am bound to the brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, in a way that far exceeds and transcends all of the, those other associations. All those other things, I don't want to diminish them. They're important, but they're temporary. Temporary rather than eternal. They're trivial compared to ultimate. They're tertiary versus primary. Because in Christ, we are one body. 
And all the differences and all of the diversity can be set aside because we kneel under the cross and at his feet as king of kings and lord of lords. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. He is the one ruling and judging and reigning. And he is the one before whom all will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. In Christ, we are one body. We are one. One body. And those with hearts and minds that are being transformed will value that and pursue that and will pursue and embrace an interdependence wholeheartedly that the world can't understand or fathom. Not only are we one in Christ, but we're no longer our own. The rest of the verse says each member belongs to all the others. The ESV says we're members one of another. This interdependence doesn't just mean that I'm part of something, that, I'm a, 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 that I belong to this body, but it also means that I, it doesn't mean that I'm part of it, but it means that I also belong to it. I'm no longer a free agent or an independent contractor. I had a few years working as an independent contractor, and it was great, except for when you didn't do your job or you didn't do your thing, nobody was there to pick you up because you were entirely on your own. We're not on our own. We belong to each other. And if I don't do my job, you suffer. If I don't contribute what God has given me to contribute, others pay the price. If you don't invest what God has given you to bless others with, they're diminished. We're no longer our own. Romans 7, 4 says, Brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life you inherited from your forefathers. No, it was with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb, without blemish or spot. 1 Corinthians 6, Do, not know, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Part of this beautiful interdependence is that we now no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to one another. I belong to you. You belong to me. We belong to each other. We can't come and go and, and do it on our own terms, on our own plan, on our own agenda, without thinking of others. In July of 1776, 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence got together and said, here is our independence. But when it comes to being part of the body of Christ, we must tear up our Declaration of Independence. We must declare, rather, our dependence solely and completely on Jesus. And with Paul in Galatians 2.20 say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My dependence is entirely and completely and ultimately on Jesus. And then we need to embrace our interdependence with our spiritual family. The family that he has called us into for his glory and for our good. Our mission statement here at Grace is that we exist to multiply devoted followers of Jesus through worship, 
community training and witness. And that community aspect, we say that's participation in Jesus' family. That's what we're called to. Recently in the mail, I got a letter from Costco saying, hey, it's time to renew your membership. Pay up if you want to keep on coming and shopping here and experiencing all the glories that we have to offer you. Well, it's time to pay up if I want to go back to Costco. But when I pay up, I'm a member. And I can go there and I can buy whatever I want from their aisles and shop there anytime I want. There are expectations I have of them because I'm a member. I'm a consumer. And I consume all that I want to my heart's content. And if at any point they dis- get to the place where they dissatisfy me, I can cease to be a member and I can reject what they have to offer. It's not how it is in the body of Christ. Part of a family. And it goes deeper than blood. It goes deeper than my blood. It goes the depth of the blood of the Son of God, the Lamb of God. And we're bound together in an interdependence that is glorious and beautiful. And as we embrace interdependence and offer ourselves to one another, this is part of our spiritual act of worship. The third point in our outlines here today as we get to verses 6 through 8 is that we should exercise our gifts freely. That we should exercise our gifts freely. We shouldn't hold back. What God has given us, we should use. Give what you've been given. Accept what he's given to you. Recognize that what you have, what he's entrusted to you, is something for you to steward and to offer freely and gladly and joyfully to others. Recognize that because it's a gift of his to you in the first place, that there's no place for boasting in what you have to offer. Paul says we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. We all have different gifts. God has given his children gifts to be given to others. The list here is representative. It's not exhaustive. It doesn't list every gift that there possibly is. And many of us have particular gifts, but that doesn't let us off the hook from doing the other things that we're called to do. Maybe we have the gift of mercy, but we don't necessarily have the the gift of encouraging. That doesn't mean that we aren't to be encouraging one another. There are plenty of places in Scripture that admonish us toward that. So whatever God has given us, we're to give freely to others, humbly, joyfully, graciously, generously. Because your gifts are vital. When we withhold our gifts, everyone suffers. It's important. In a healthy body, as we have our minds renewed and our lives transformed, that we live with a heart and a mind and an attitude of what I have to offer to one another. I remember growing up playing trumpet. I could kind of keep I was decent, but I didn't have much rhythm. It goes back to that dancing comment earlier. 
Drove my band teacher crazy. But I remember at church growing up, and we had this little group of us who would, uh, there was a guy that kind of collected us all together and said, hey, let's work on this little special number we can play in church. And uh, so we got together, and we practiced, and we practiced, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but I was, I was in junior high or early high school, and uh, there was a special Sunday coming up. It might have been Easter. It was special. I don't know if it was exactly Easter, but it was a special Sunday. And we practice, and we're ready, and, and, and we show up that morning to, to do this thing. And I look around, and the guy that our leader, our leader wasn't there. He just didn't show up. And I went to my dad, who was the pastor, and I said, Dad, I don't think we should do this. He's our leader. I'm pretty uncomfortable with this. And he said, oh, you guys can do it. You guys can do it. And I'm thinking, okay, we'll do it. I didn't think it was a good idea. And I came to find out that it wasn't a good idea. And the moment I did was when I realized that I was playing the melody. And I get to this part in my music, and I see that I've got several measures of rest. And I realize the guy that's not there was supposed to come in at that point and carry the melody. But he wasn't there. And in that instant, I decided I'm going to try my best. And it didn't go well. (laughs) It was atrocious. Think of dying, screaming elephants or something. It was humiliating. It was embarrassing because somebody didn't do their part. Somebody didn't do their job. Somebody didn't contribute what God had given them to contribute. And we suffer when we don't offer and we don't invest and we don't contribute what God has given us to contribute. What you have to offer is beautiful and glorious and it's God-given and it's from his heart to all of us. Don't hold it back. Give it generously and joyfully. Because that's part of what it means to be part of this wonderful, wonderful team. As you think of the days ahead, maybe you're sitting there saying, well, you know, I don't know exactly what I've got to offer. How do I know? Well, the first response that we need to have is ask ourselves the question, are we in Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith and trust in him, repenting of your sins, trusting in him, to be your savior. Because if not, you're not part of the body yet and you can't participate in the glory of it. And if you're sitting here today and say, I really don't know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, I would love to talk to you if you are all interested. And I'd urge you to consider that. Talk to the person that brought you or a friend that you know or someone that you understand to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Answer that question first and foremost. It is of ultimate importance. And for the rest of us, one of the ways that we can understand our gifts is by asking ourselves some questions. What excites you as you think of serving? What types of ministries are attractive and fulfilling? What needs or opportunities do you see as you look around? What skills and competencies do you have? How have you been affirmed as you've already served? Those are good questions to help us diagnose and to understand how God has made us and how we can be a service to others. Ask those around you who you trust. And if you're looking for ways to serve, seeking ways to serve, go to our website, 
graceplayers.org slash serve, or text serve to our phone number, 614-888-7733. There'll be opportunities for you to express ways that you can participate, or just to say, help me figure that out. We'd love to have that discussion with you. It's a point of practical application as you think of walking out of here today. I'd encourage you to think of a few things. Ask God to show you, to open your eyes to how you can be a blessing to someone else. Ask him to show you how you can serve, how you can invest, how you can employ what he's entrusted to you for the benefit of others. Here's another thing you can do. You can find a trusted friend and express a need or a struggle to them. That's part of what it means to not think of ourselves too highly. Maybe there's something going on in your life right now that's too difficult for you. You're not sure how to get out of it. You have a need that seems overwhelming. Don't let pride get in the way of giving someone else the opportunity to minister to you with the needs, with the gifts that they've given, that God's given them. Share with someone. Invite them to pray with you or for you. As we do that, as we begin to bless one another, as we make our needs known, and as we're looking for ways to serve, as we make it our primary focus of not just what can I get, how can I be blessed, but how can I be a blessing to others? What do I have to offer? How can I put that into motion for others? God is glorified, and the body of Christ is built up in glorious, beautiful splendor. See, when we exercise our gifts, it's part of our spiritual act of worship. When we envision ourselves rightly, when we embrace interdependence wholeheartedly, God is honored and glorified. And we get to bear the the benefit and reap the fruit of that. We need each other. I need you. We need one another. And as we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, the glory goes to God. He gets it all. And the world around us looks at us and says, they really love each other. What's going on there? And we can point them to our Savior and say, you've got to get to know him. His love is out of this world. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. God in heaven, I pray that you would help us see and understand your heart. I pray that you would teach us what it means to do this group project in a way that honors and pleases and serves you. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who have been a blessing to me through the weeks and years and months and decades. Thanks for the ones that have been a blessing to me this past week to pray with me, to encourage me. God, thank you that you have placed us here, not alone, but with one another so that we could show off your glory as your bride, as your church, under your leadership, under your headship. And I pray that at Grace Polaris Church, we would embody and we would embrace a beautiful and glorious interdependence that would bring you honor and praise 
both now and forever and ever. Take our hands, take our lives, take our lips. Help us to speak and act and move according to the rhythm of your grace and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.